this episode of the Welcome to Fatherhood podcast. I am continuing the conversation that I've been having, uh, tracing the portrait of fatherhood from a historical perspective. Um, Took a little bit of a break to present two different conversations that I had with uh, two guests that I hope you enjoyed. And so today we're picking up from where we left off and looking at uh, the portrait of fatherhood in the 20th century. At the start of the 20th century, the new term that was used to refer to the paternal figure was the word dad. It represented a new ideal of fatherhood different from that of its predecessors. So what what did the dad look like? Well, according to the article that we've been uh, exploring, that I've been exploring, titled Fatherhood Ideals in the United States, Historical Dimensions. Dad was the father who was a close rather than distant paternal figure. And he took on mainly fun activities with the children. Interestingly, this figure in the 20th century looked like the colonial father in terms of his closeness with his children and involvement in their lives. but. And this is a very significant but instead of the stern father figure of colonial times, um, it was becoming acceptable for dad to be friendly with the kids. Dad was also expected to be involved in child rearing for the sake of the child, but he did not share equally in the tasks and responsibility of child rearing. So dad was the symbol of the word that the article used here is bourgeoisie, which in the best way that I can explain it is the middle class. That's what it is. The middle class, upper middle class to middle class. That's what the bourgeoisie is. It's a French, fancy sounding French word, bourgeoisie. So dad was also a symbol of the bourgeoisie. I just want to say the word. Dad was a symbol of the bourgeoisie. And as such, he was a a marker dividing the middle class from working class. So what does that mean? Any father who was not part of the bourgeoisie was more likely to be thought of in terms of stereotypes, meaning any father that was not part of that middle class or upper middle class were seen excessive as excessively masculine, as violence prone, authoritarian, and impulsive. Basically, whatever fatherhood looked like in prior eras, colonial America, industrial revolution, those ideals that were once the it things 
were now seen as no bueno. And given that dad's symbolic implication as being part of that bourgeoisie, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. If you were a minority father or minority dad, I should say, if you were a minority dad, you were seen as one of those fathers with negative stereotypes or through the lens of negative stereotypes. And so you might be wondering, why am I making this differentiation between dad and father? I'm using those terms in that way, particularly because I want to capture the nuances that I've picked up on in this article. So at the turn of the 20th century, because this new way of looking at fatherhood was emerging, then dad symbolizes everything that is good about fatherhood. This new idea, this new perspective on fatherhood was all captured in the term dad. Father, on the other hand, since it came from from way back and, and we want to create some differentiation between where we are moving forward and, 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 and what's behind us, then father contained everything else that was not the ideal dad of the 20th century. So of note, I found this very interesting. According to to the article, it says that the essence of the dad ideal persisted and managed to weather relatively intact two world wars, the Great Depression, and the suburban barbecue of the 1950s. So what is the suburban barbecue of the 1950s? Mainly, that's the rise of the iconic family ideal. White, middle class, upper middle class, a home in the suburbs with the expansion of suburban homes, a white picket fence. You've seen it in movies. You've seen it in sitcoms. If you if you have any uh, inclination to American television around that time, that's what it is. If you're outside of the U.S. and you'll be interested in seeing what that looks like and you have access to YouTube or to Google, just look up... Um, sitcoms in the 1950s sitcoms in 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 the 1960s and you'll see what that all looks like So continuing to answer the question of what did the 20th century dad look like, I'm going to add another part to that question, which is what was expected of this new version of the paternal figure? So I'm going to read something here uh, to kind of answer that question or at least continue the conversation. It says, the dad was expected to take daily although not equal, responsibility for bringing up children and the details of running a household. He was expected to play with sons and daughters, instruct them, see that they did their homework, and take them out on outings and camping trips. He could offer them hugs and expressions of affection. He was expected to be a chum, especially with his sons, 
and teach them how to play football and baseball. There was less emphasis on the father's role as a disciplinarian. Most fathers no longer played a role in a child's choice of marrying a partner. At best, they might try to negotiate the time when a son or daughter would return from a date. Since courting no longer occurred in the family parlor, fathers could not exercise much supervision, even if they had been so inclined. In the realm of childbirth, a father was not expected to be present at the birth of a child. So the ideal dad had to have enough leisure time to be able to devote to his family. Men were expected to spend more time at home. So these were some of the expectations of this paternal figure. Clearly, there are still, some of this still applies to the way in which fatherhood is being played out today, as in today. There is this expectation of me being involved in my child's life. There is this expectation of um, making sure that I do not keep myself distant from my children, mentally, emotionally, physically in particular, but to be able to embrace them and roll on the ground with them or roll on the grass with them, take them out on trips and all of that stuff. Like these things are, they're not necessarily uh, horrible things. I don't think they're horrible things at all. In fact, these are all wonderful things. Uh, So this development of the father figure as a result of what that iteration had been uh, historically up to that point, I think it's a pretty good development. But that also might be because my perception of what a good father should be or, or, or a good father is and how I perceive myself as a good dad, I believe that I'm a good dad, um, might be shaped by, you know, all of these guardrails and all of these um, redefinitions and all of these uh, uh, outside pressures, I guess, or 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 forces or circumstances of my environment, better said, uh, as well as my own experience informing me that this is the way that I want to carry out my fatherhood role with my children. Men were expected to spend more time at home. At the same time, it seemed that there was a growing interest in fatherhood to encourage more paternal involvement in the lives of sons in particular. As part of this drive, suburban homes created the appropriate setting for backyard play. Many authors were producing books giving fathers advice on how to raise their sons. The article says that the main justification these authors gave for paternal involvement was that fathers could prevent sons from falling into evil ways. And so simultaneously in the motherhood landscape, there was a growing distrust created by the fear that men were not manly enough. The article says mothers no longer enjoyed the unqualified esteem in which they were held in the 19th century. It was believed that too much mother-dominated child-rearing produced 
unmanly boys. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, another segment in this to, to kind of elaborate on that point. It was a much larger group of psychologists, sociologists, social workers, home economists, and family service counselors who propagated the idea of the ideal dad in the 1920s. Elaborating fears of the effeminate boy and the much older fear of excessive maternal love, advisors stated repeatedly that too much mothering was bad for the child. It caused in children maternal fixation, dependence on mothers, and personal immaturity. They argued explicitly that fatherly involvement was good for the personal growth and development of the child. Good mothering alone was not enough, they argued, and fathers made a different and unique contribution. They could provide a model of true manhood. A son who had played baseball with his father and gone camping with him would grow up to be independent and self-reliant. Moreover, the daughter who enjoyed her father's love and attention could choose the right man to marry. So looking back in the 1920s, this is some of the movements that were taking place and shaping the portrait of what fatherhood looked like. So moving on to the next decade, in the 1930s, we come across the Great Depression. If you're not familiar with this period in American history, whether or not you live inside the United States, I recommend that you just do basic research. If you have access to Internet, uh, Google, Wikipedia, and just kind of read up on what happened, what caused the Great Depression um, to, to become familiarized with with it. So the Great Depression impacted the way fatherhood was seen during that era. Unemployed and underemployed men had plenty of time to spend with their families, to be the pals to their children they had always wanted to be. While employed men had much less time to devote to their children, they seemed to have felt better about the hours they spent since they were also fulfilling their breadwinning responsibility. Men who failed to provide grew irritable, despondent, abusive, or withdrawn. Many deserted their families entirely. Children who had all along wanted to have or longed for fathers to spend more time with them actually preferred fathers who brought home the money to the family. When fathers failed to do so, children, especially teenagers, forced to become family breadwinners themselves, blamed their fathers and rebelled. For every adolescent who was angry or rebellious with his or her unemployed father was another who only felt pity. The central lesson of the depression was that paternal involvement was never the main goal of fathers or their children, but money was. I feel like I keep coming back to this uh, point about the fi- how finances seem to influence the person of the father as 
a man assumes the responsibility that he assumes. And it, it is kind of like walking this balance beam of being the breadwinner, but also not letting one's employment or one's career take so much time away from the family life. And at times I found myself walking this balance beam. Not that my career choice is one that is so demanding on my time, uh, but particularly, for instance, um, working and then hosting this podcast, doing all of the work myself, while also trying to find time to spend with my son and with my wife. And so it is like juggling a lot of different things at the same time. And all of these things bring meaning to my life. And one without the other wouldn't be as meaningful. Although without my family, none of it will have meaning. But I have come across people and uh, a, a good friend of mine uh, this is certainly the, the, the case that um, she was once in with her spouse and their children in that he would work so much and that she felt like she was shouldering the responsibility of raising their two sons by herself, even though he was there, but he was not there. So there is this tension, this, this back and forth, this, this tug of war, so to speak. Uh, that I believe a man feels, and I've certainly felt, that giving into one side one way more than the other is not necessarily the best thing to do, but it's about finding that perfect balance, as, is, as are many things in life, honestly. So the war in the 1940s created new job opportunities, and that was a welcoming sight for men who had been unemployed coming out of the Great Depression. So the father employed in war production was earning a pretty good living. And because of the casualties of war, there was a raging debate for and against allowing fathers to be included in the draft. So those in favor argued that basically more men were needed, more soldiers were needed. And so we needed to allow fathers of families to be drafted into the war. Those opposed argued that uh, fathers needed to remain so that they can maintain small businesses. And they were also arguing for the father's role in preventing juvenile delinquency. Now, the article itself goes into a pretty extensive um, explanation on, on what people's mindsets were and what people were sociologists were looking into and psychologists and which demographic was affected more or looked at the most and what have you. I'm not going to get into all of that because it just gets, uh, it, it's, I'm just not going to get into all of that. But what I will do is sum it up in this way. Wartime mobilization also interacted with the cultural definition of fatherhood in another way. The failure of many young men, fathers or otherwise, to pass army physicals led to charges that overly solicitous mothers and absent fathers had made sons soft, too weak, or cowardly to fight. People were arguing that mothers had protected 
too many boys from the inevitable struggles with their fathers. The elemental struggle that would bring a boy into manhood and independence. So mothers were overprotective, but at the same time, fathers were also too passive. Such passive fathers failed to punish children, make decisions, were excessively concerned with being liked by their children, acted childlike, and neglected to tell sons the facts of life. By the time we get to the 1950s, dad was a do-it-yourself type of guy, right? He was supposed to be in the basement working on a do-it-yourself project or in the driveway teaching his son about cars or in the backyard, like I said earlier, throwing a steak on the grill. During that era, like many of dad's other hobbies, a new rationale for the involved father was that he would find it creative and enjoyable to be involved in the lives of his children, to be that hands-on type of father, to be that hands-on type of dad. And it would be the best of his hobbies, of all of his hobbies. Being with his children is like a hobby, was this new idea, a more meaningful activity than that of a career or an occupation. like I am justifying to myself the reason why I find this fascinating. I mean, and I, I do naturally find this fascinating because in the two conversations that I've had in between um, this series, right? Um, last Wednesday's conversation and the Wednesday before, it was interesting to hear the way in which my guests were talking about themselves and, and were talking about their fathers um, through the perspective of what I've been learning uh, through this historical journey that I'm taking. And the fact of the matter is they are our fathers. All right, let me personalize it more, even though I don't have a relationship with my father, but Here's what I've, here's the fact. The fact is I am as much a product of my social environment as my father was a product of his social environment. I am as much a product of the era of existence of our, of my world's present state of being as my father was the product of his world's present state of being and he's still living. And so he's been through a lot of these cultural shifts, a lot of these intellectual shifts, a lot of these social uh, shifts, a lot of these psychological shifts in our society. The, the, the facets of our existence that shape the way in which we interact with our world. I am a product of that. He is a product of that in his way, his father before him and so far and so forth. 
And so it, it's interesting to hear when I speak and when I catch myself or when I'm speaking with my guests or when I'm speaking with friends just on this topic in general, to be able to pick up on some of these notions that have been passed down to me, to them, uh, through the channels of their interactions and my interaction with my father when we had and other fathers and people in general. And the whole point of me doing this is so that I can better understand why I feel the way I feel when I start thinking about myself in my role as a father. Why do I feel like I have to be this way? Where is that coming from? Where did that originate? And like I said at the beginning of this, this is by no means an extensive, in-depth, comprehensive, you know, look at the total historical landscape of this topic of fatherhood. There are people who have done a lot more extensive research and a lot more uh, extensive analyses and all of that. And this is just me and literally one article that I found. It was awesome. I read it and I've been basing all of this commentary, if you will, on just one article. So that in itself shows that, again, I am no historian. And to say one more time, this is not a comprehensive thing, but this has been helpful for me as a first step in that direction to be able to understand where these things are coming from. And it is important for me to understand that for myself because I want to better understand how I can properly fill this role in a way that would honor the beautiful gift that my son is to me. He deserves the best of me. And so if I can then understand where some of the pressures that I've put on myself come from, to be able to trace back to at least some point in history, knowing that at some time in my life, having interacted with not just my own father, but many other men who have played a paternal or not a paternal, a father figure role in my life. And I have taken, internalized things from them knowingly or unknowingly. Then that helps me better put into focus what my parameters are, the mode in which I'm functioning so that I can continue to offer the best version of myself to my son. And that's the only reason why I'm doing this. So this is more of an introspective work for me that I am putting you through the grueling process of having to listen to me work things out in my own head. But if that serves as a catalyst for someone else, for one of you perhaps to want to do something similar, the same thing or something entirely different, whatever your process is. I can only hope and pray that the goal, the end goal is the same. The better I understand myself and the better I understand myself in my role of fatherhood, 
the better version of myself I can consistently present to my son, to my wife, to my friends, in my society, to my surroundings, so far and so forth. And so this is where we're at. After this, there's only one more period that I will be exploring and then this series will be concluded and um, we'll see where we go from there. But again, I thoroughly enjoy this and thank you for the patience of listening to me go through all of this internal process externally and I'll talk to you next week.